morning and welcome to Atheist Talk on KTNF AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. Good morning to all of you joining us locally by radio and streaming online. We appreciate you tuning in. Today is Sunday, June 20th, or July 21st. I'm your hurt host, Hertzy Hertz, here in studio with Stephanie Zavon. And joining us in studio is author Jenny Brown. Jenny Brown is a national women's liberation organizer and former editor of Labor Notes. She was a leader in the grassroots campaign and made to make the morning after pill contraception available over the counter. Thank you. In the U.S. and was a plaintiff in the winning lawsuit. Thank you. Thank you. She is the author of Without Apology, The Abortion Struggle Now. This is an open conversation, and we invite you to and encourage you to excuse me. It's been a day <laughs> already. I know. Okay. Listener interaction with your phone calls to nine five two nine four six six two zero five. Your emails to radio at mnatheist.org. Tweet us at at atheist talk or check out the Facebook page atheist talk. The phone number is only available when we are live, but you can always email or tweet whether we're live or you're listening to this podcast later. Stephanie, Jenny, good morning and welcome to Atheist Talk. Good morning. Good morning. So Jenny, what was it that made you decide to take on this particular topic? And actually I was going to say we should probably introduce that to that we're talking specifically about her book. Oh yes. Yes, Birth Strike: The Hidden Fight Over Women's Work. Now I'm guessing this does not have to do with us just, you know, working in the labor force. That's right. Though though I, you know, unpaid. I love how there's a sentence that says unpaid labor, and I'm just like, there's a double meaning there. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, we have um, a pregnant woman with an unpaid labor sign on the on the cover of the book because we didn't want we didn't want it to seem like we were saying that um, people who have kids are scabs on our birth strike. Right. What we're trying to say is that there's a spontaneous birth strike, like our birth rate in the United States is the lowest it's ever been um, because it's so hard to have kids nowadays. And things are getting worse, actually, um, in terms of health care, child care, paid leave, all of the things that we need to, ha- to have kids in a kind of a sane way. And um, so that's the res- what's resulting now is, is a lower birth rate. But I got involved um, in thinking about this really um, – when we were uh, working on getting the morning after pill over the counter, so this is after sex contraception. Um, it works up to four days after you after you have sex. Um, but the problem was it was prescription only in the United States, and like sixty other countries had it over the counter when when we started our campaign in the U.S. Um, and the problem with the prescription is you have to pay for a doctor's appointment, you have to get to the doctor, you have to get the prescription, you have to go fill it. Um, all when it's most effective, the sooner you take it. So, so that was a big obstacle, and also it added to the cost. So, um, we were campaigning. It was a ten-year campaign. Um, we did everything from sit in at the FDA to pass out illegally pass out the pill at rallies. Um, we gave it away at, as a door prize at fundraisers. Um, we did all of this organizing around it, and um, every uh, February fifteenth. The day after Romance's official day, we would we would give it we'd have rallies and give it away to anybody who needed it. Um, so we tr- we were really trying to normalize that the morning after pill is a tool for people to use um, if they're worried that they might get pregnant. So, um, but what we found was you know 
we started, it was the Bush administration. We expected them to be all against us. Then we finally got the FDA to agree that it should be over the counter. And the Obama administration, which had just come in, blocked it. And so we're like, okay, what is going on here? The Democrats are supposed to be good on reproductive rights. We might grumble that they're this or that. But in general, they seem to be supporting reproductive rights. So we started to look at what, why um, a method of birth control was actually on the chopping block. And so that got us thinking about maybe some of this anti-abortion and anti-birth control stuff is not necessarily just about um, – you know, people's moral objection to abortion, but it might actually have something to do with the birth rate. And at the same time, when the economic crisis hit, the birth rate dropped and everybody expected it to go back up after the economic crisis supposedly ended, only hasn't really ended for most people. Um, and it hasn't. It stayed It stayed low. In fact, it's a record low now. It's gone down since the book came out in March, actually. So, um, so that was when we started looking at, okay, what is really going on here? And most of us who, well, at least those of us who you know grew up um, in the within the the women's liberation movement, the second wave of, of feminism, um, are much more used to thinking of people being concerned about overpopulation. Um, one of the the things you talk about um, in the book is China and their transition from their one child policy to actually doing much more to support um, an uh, internally sustainable birth rate. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. I mean, when, when the women's liberation movement started, um, so generally it's thought of, about as being founded in 1967 or 1968, um, the power structure, at least some portion of it, and this included Republicans and Democrats, um, was very worried about overpopulation both in the United States and in other countries. Um, and in particular, they were um, they were worried that it was in the U.S. was leading to overpopulation in the cities, crime, overstuffed schools, all of this stuff. And the birth rate was quite high. I mean, in the in the mid '60s, when it was um, it it had gotten up to 3.8 or 3.9 um, children per woman, which was quite high. Um, but by the early 70s, it had dropped, but you still hear all of this alarmist stuff like um, the Population Bomb book by, uh, by the Ehrlichs came out in, in 1968. Um, there was a, a book that came out in 1969 called Famine 1975 that predicted, you know, that India, Egypt, and China would be – would see millions of people dying of famine. Um, they were they were very worried about it just at that moment when when the population uh, growth rate started to change and it started to go down again and so by the mid 70s the birth rate in the United States is closer to replacement rate which is 2.1 children per woman um, but there's a lag and we're like we were scarred in the women's liberation movement we were scarred by all of these um, stories which still occasionally happen of um, uh, massive reproductive coercion, in particular uh, aimed at women who are on welfare, but also in particular aimed at African-American women, uh, but also Mexican-American women and um, certainly Puerto Rican women and Native American women all experienced uh, 
forced sterilization or they went in to have a baby and they woke up and they were sterilized. They went in to have maybe a, a cyst removed, at which didn't require sterilization, but they were sterilized anyway and then they weren't even told. Or in the case of some um, women in, uh, in the L.A. County Hospital, Mexican-American women were – basically when they were in labor, they were told they needed to sign this thing if they wanted to get painkillers and they didn't know what it was. Some of them didn't have the English to figure out what it was and then they discovered that they had uh, uh, signed away their reproductive rights, that basically that they were going to be sterilized. So there was, there was a lot of incidents of this. So very much we thought, okay, this is what the power structure wants to do. They want to reduce um, poor people having kids. They want to reduce women of color having kids. They're, they really want that. But what we're seeing now is you know, there's one abortion clinic left in Mississippi. It's completely besieged. There are a lot of um, restrictions on what abortions they can perform. And then there are uh, dozens, I think around 55, crisis pregnancy centers in Mississippi. So um, those are fake clinics that basically try to convince women who don't want kids to continue their pregnancies and not get an abortion. So um, so we're really seeing a sea change, and we see it also in um, some of the establishment think tanks and their reports. We see them really worrying about the lower birth rate and um, a birth rate that's below replacement level. They're worried about what is the effect going to be on Social Security. They're worried about um, will we have enough people to recruit to the military. Um, they worry about like just generally the economy. Is it going to grow? Um, so that's that's the kind of thing that we're hearing now from these famous establishment forces that were freaked out about overpopulation in the 60s. Um, and I brought up China in part because we can look at our own situation here in the U.S. and, and you know, point to specifically the religious concerns about that. Um, but when we look at a country like China, um, their history is doing the same thing but with very different um, – very different background, particularly in religion. Can you just tell us what happened there? Yeah. So, um, so China puts in a one-child policy in the late seventies. Um, this is after Mao has died, and it's part of a, a bunch of reforms that Deng Xiaoping was um, introducing to try to bring um, more development and uh, more market, uh, you know, sort of capitalism, early capitalism into China. Um, and if you, uh, if you lived in a city, you could have one kid. If you lived in a rural area, you could have two. And if you were a national minority, you could have three. Um, and they, so they regulated it very seriously. They, um, it, and there are even some cases of, of uh, uh, forced abortions, although that has been much exaggerated by our, our uh, sort of xenophobic press. Um, but the basic thing was that if you were going to have more kids – you had to pay a fine, and so people were often um, were often forced to pay a fine if they if they had more kids. Okay, and I'm going to stop you there so we can go to commercial. And when we come back, um, we'll talk about how that changed and when and why. Please stay with us through the break, and we'll return to Atheist Talk with Stephanie and author Jenny Brown, talking about Jenny's new book, Birth Strike. You're, I'm Hertzy Hertz, and you're listening to AM 950 KTNF, the Progressive Voice of Minnesota.
welcome back to AM 950 KTNF, the progressive voice of Minnesota. You're tuned in to Atheist Talk, and I'm your host, Hertzie Hertz. In studio with me is Stephanie Zavan, and author of the book, book Birth Strike, Jenny Brown. Atheist Talk is produced with funding from Minnesota Atheists and Cucumbers Restaurants in Edina, Minnesota. Please consider visiting our sponsors, and if you do, let them know you appreciate their support of Atheist Talk. If you'd like to advertise on the program and help keep us on the air, please contact us at radio at mnatheist.org. As for the here and now, if you'd like to get involved in the conversation with Stephanie, Jenny, and I this morning, you can call us at 952 956-6205, email us at radio at mnatheist.org, or tweet us at at Atheist Talk, or you can check out the Facebook page. Also, Atheist Talk. (laughs) (laughs) I need to condense that. (laughs) Maybe a little. Stephanie, Jenny, last time we left off, we were talking about China and their change and the change in their policy. Yeah, so... um By the late 70s, they felt that um, population growth was outstripping um, the the increases in production that they had been able to do. Um, And so they put in this one-child policy. Well, it was extremely effective. And by the mid-2000s, it was starting to look like um, they actually had uh, – a population was going to start to decrease soon. So – at the same time, they were uh, getting a lot of capitalist firms in there, which needed a lot of workers. And so they started to think, okay, well, we need to get the birth rate back up. And so they changed it to um, a two-child policy. If you already, if you were um, born in a one-child family, which many people were, um, and now they've gotten rid of the restrictions entirely. It turns out that people liked having small families and have not been that enthusiastic about having larger ones. So, so it hasn't really worked out to, um, to just get rid of those restrictions. So now they're trying to encourage people to have kids. Um, they're saying, oh, you know, who will take care of you in your old age? And this kind of echoes what's going on in the United States where they want to cut Social Security – but they realize that if there are people, if there are people are not having large families, then who is going to take care of those folks when they get rid of Social Security? So they're very much like trying to encourage us to have bigger families, and we we call this program uh, uh, small government, big families, because they're they're kind of explicit about it. They actually are saying, well, you know, people can't really exist as atomized individuals. They need uh, family to support them through all of the things that the um, the uh, government could provide, like, you know, job churning, um, unemployment insurance, health care, education, all the things that... So, so there, this is starting to be a big emphasis is to get uh, the family size up in the United States. So I've, I've actually got two points on that, because when you mentioned the unemployment part... You know, it's like, are they expecting then the kids to work if mom and dad get laid off? Because I'm like, I had, you know, my family had some times where there was a layoff or something. And I was 10 during one of those times. And it's like, if the government's starting to expect the kids to work when you're like, la- you know, as a parent, when you get laid off, I'm like, then we're bringing back the child labor, which last I checked was a bad idea. <laughs> So that's an interesting well, point. it's bad for the kids. True, true. It's bad for the kids. And I'm just, I'm just going to stop there. I'm just going to stop there. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also bad for the adults because kids' wages were undercutting parents' wages. And, and a lot of employers would actually 
in the period when child labor was very common in the United States, um, employers would hire kids instead of their parents. And so then that meant you were even poorer and you had to send all more kids out. To, so it was like this endless endless loop of poverty. Um, I also have just another point when you were talking about, you know, that who's going to take care of you when you're older. So I am child free, child free myself and have decided that kids are not for me. Um, and it's kind of funny because people have talked about that in some of the groups I'm in. And one of the things that people say back is, well, how many of the people who have children, how many of them are sitting in nursing homes where their kids aren't visiting? You know, we tried to, I know with my great grandmother, we tried to visit her as much as we could. And I know her children, at least one of her children did, but she had six kids. And I think there's only one or two of them who visited on a regular basis. You know, it's like this, this, there's a romanticized idea that does not match reality with that. And it's very frustrating. It's also frustrating because I know we'll probably get to this at some point, but if I don't have, if I'm not making enough money to have a child, what makes you think I'm going to have enough money to have a child and take care of somebody who need who should be in a nursing home, and I have to work full time, and there's about ten other things that are going on with that. It's like uh, this is not going to work. And then my favorite part with that is there's a, you know, I know the Minnesota atheist community is very much for the death with dignity program. Well, then they're also saying, well, you shouldn't have that. You know, you shouldn't, you know, you, you can't let these people decide when they're going to go. So I'm like, so you're just screwing us on all of the levels that would help us not have these issues. <laughs> exactly. I mean, Social Security is a big, was a big feminist advance. And it's, it's often not noted how important it was that Basically, having kids is a lottery. You know, they might grow up and be really responsible and take care of you. They might end up, you know, not having um, the capacity to do so, or they might be jerks. I was going to say it's the same with parents, though, too. I mean, it's a lottery there. You could have parents who are amazing and wonderful, or you have parents who are abusive. And if they're abusive or terrible or, you know, kick you out of the house, how many, how much of you want to actually help them? Right. Well, with Social Security, at least it meant that for anybody who worked, they got something in their old age. It didn't rely, they didn't have to rely on their kids to support them, which was the system before Social Security. If you didn't have kids, you were really out of luck. Um, so so it's, really, it's really an important feminist advance to have um, you know, a, a retirement system that goes with us because we, especially for women, have a lot of breaks in employment and it goes with us from job to job. It doesn't require you to work some one place for 20 years, which is not the reality anymore. Um, and it means that you're not going to be reliant on having your kids, having uh, your kids take care of you. And, and it was a real pressure for people to have lots of kids in order to maybe possibly have someone who could take care of them in their old age before Social Security came in. Well, now, of course, Social Security is under attack again. Um, virtually every administration, Democrat and Republican, has taken a whack at it over the last 30 years. Um, and it's partly because it's this very radical program that socializes that need for retirement. Um, and, uh, you know, employers don't want to pay it. Um, they, you know, they would much rather have some some system that doesn't require them to pay in. So, so that's why it's under attack. But they're saying that the reason that Social Security is is unhealthy, which it isn't, but th this is what they're saying, is because uh, 
you know, you feminists have decided not to have as many kids, and so that's it's your fault. Um, so I try to debunk that a little bit in the book and talk about how actually there's plenty of production to support elders and kids in our society. It's just being distributed wrong. It's being all being stovepiped to the top so that when we go to try to take care of our elders or take care of our kids, we don't have the money. So it's, the money is somewhere. It's sloshing around in the system, but it's just not getting down to the working people. All right. Well, we're going to have to break for commercial again. We'll return right after the break. We'll return with Stephanie's van and author Jenny Brown. Please stay with us. I'm Hertzy Hertz, and you're listening to Atheist Talk on KTNF AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. Thank you for tuning in to Atheist Talk on AM 950 KTNF. I'm your host, Hertzie Hertz, and we're having what I would classify as a fascinating conversation with Stephanie and Jenny Brown, author of Birth Strike, The Hidden Fight Over Women's Work. If you'd like to join the conversation today, you can call in at 952-946-6205, email us at radio at mnatheist.org, or you can tweet or find our Facebook page, Atheist Talk. Before we continue this conversation, there is some housekeeping I need to attend to. I want to note our group of dedicated volunteers and the generous donations of you, our don- our donors. I see it. I just want to thank all of them because I don't think I got an email this week. Sorry. However, if you do help, are able to help donate the donation, please consider doing so at either our radio fund page or our Patreon, which will have extended interview with Jenny Brown and other guests. Uh, www.patreon.com slash Atheist Talk. Minnesota Atheist is a 501c3 tax-deductible organization. We couldn't do the show without you, and we deeply appreciate your support. Music for Minnesota Atheist is by composer and member Brent Michael Davis and is used with permission. Please note, all opinions are of the guest and host only and do not reflect, not necessarily reflect those of the Minnesota Atheist organization. And with all that out of the way, let's get back to our conversation with Stephanie and Jenny Brown. So, Jenny, when we went to commercial, we were talking um, about Social Security and and some of the reasons and ways that um, our financial system is stacking up against um, people who perhaps want to have fewer children. Um, It also affects, however, people who would like to have more children. Um, One of the things that happened when women in the U.S. got more control over their their birth rate was they joined the workforce, um, which did some changing to the the salary landscape. You want to talk about the family wage and what happened there? Yeah, I mean, the family wage was a, a demand of unions from way before World War II, but it wasn't really achieved by even uh, you know a large percentage of the working class until that post-war period. Um, and it was always more an ideal than a reality. But the idea of the family wage was that one breadwinner would be able to support um, the a person doing the caregiving job, raising the kids and, and taking care of elders and, and doing the housework, um, and their kids, right? So basically you have one male breadwinner. Now the problem is that it was an excuse to pay women less because he has a family to support. You're just working for pin money, right? Um, but there was one progressive element of it, which is that it meant that employers were putting something in towards the family care job. And as um, as wages stagnated and um, our savings got eaten up by inflation in the 70s, um, 
basically both spouses started going out to work. Um, and this meant that basically we were doing 80 hours a, a week of work for um, what we had been doing 40, right? So, um, and then the family care job, taking care of the kids, elders, and all of that was crammed into the day after work, um, which is why we're experiencing this really intense crunch. It also means that employers got off the hook for making sure that they were actually contributing something towards family care, and it hasn't been, uh, you know, it, it's actually been getting worse. It hasn't been um, made up for with any kind of childcare system or paid family leave. We've really um, taken, borne the brunt of it, and that has resulted in a lot of folks deciding that they just can't afford to have kids or... Like in our group, we were kind of astonished. We did a consciousness raising in 2015, my group, um, National Women's Liberation in Gainesville, Florida. Um, and we, uh, a lot of our members had had one kid and were thinking about maybe having a second and we're just like, no, I can't do it. It's too difficult. Um, not just the toll of having the baby when you already have a child, but but also the the expenses, the childcare, um, not having paid leave, our wages were often not enough. We were, uh, had a lot of school debt, many of us, um, and it was just healthcare was unreliable. Um, all of these things were really um, feeding into that decision to just have one kid. And it wasn't that they didn't want a larger family; they had siblings. They wanted a. Um, you know, uh, their kids to have that kind of relationship with their siblings, but the e economic situation was was just too hard, and so that's why we're calling it sort of a, a spontaneous, uncoordinated birth strike, where um, people are each making that decision for themselves, but um, it it adds up to a birth slowdown or a birth strike when taken as the whole population, and um, so we're. Uh, we think that we should be able to make some demands based on um, based on the fact that our birth rate is at the record low. So that's where we're. That's the other part of the strike is like we should have demands for childcare and healthcare and paid leave and shorter work hours and all those things. And I, I should point out here, um, and you touch on it in the book, uh, even if you didn't specifically bring it up here, but. When we're talking about a family wage and, and women not having to go out to work and being able to be paid for their work at home, um, there has always been a, uh, let's call them more exploited class where that hasn't been uh, a possibility and, and reproductive control has been part of that strategy. Yeah, I mean, it was always more um, more like a goal that you would have, uh, you know, that, that the mom would be able to stay home. It for uh, for the working class of color, it was very rare, and f unless you had a unionized, good unionized job, you really didn't see it. And then, of course, it's a sexist system in that it makes uh, women reliant on men for their uh, existence, which then leads to all kinds of tyranny in the home. So, um, but rather than go back to a family wage system, we think we should go forward to what they have in a lot of countries in Europe, which they call social wage, um, which basically means there are things that you everybody in the society gets just because they're there, um, including health care, child care, paid leave by law. Fifty countries have six months of paid leave or more. Um, we don't have any paid leave by law except in a couple of 
couple of cities and states now have a, a short amount, but nothing like six months. Um, and they also have shorter work hours, um, partly because there's a lot of paid sick leave that's also by law. It doesn't matter what your employer is. Um, you get it just because you're a worker. Um, and you even get um, get paid leave even if you don't have a job, believe it or not, um, in some countries. Um, so you get paid parental leave even if you're unemployed at the time you get pregnant. So, um, so we think that these – like having those social supports – is is the non-sexist way of of making m- making good on that promise of the family wage that we we are really don't even have that anymore. And to make it explicit, even though it's implicit in what you're saying, um, when we're talking about a social wage um, being able to uh, being less sexist, we are talking about um, because these benefits are portable. Um, you do not have to stay in a family if the family is sexist. You do not have to stay with an employer if the employer um, causes problems in some way. So it's it's really the um, portability of a benefit that is due to you as being part of the society that that makes the difference. Exactly. This is so important. I know so many people who say, well, I would retire. I'm really exhausted, but I can't afford the health care or um, – people who are in the midst of a messy divorce and health care is being held over their heads. Um, it's just uh, very um, – it's, it's, assist- it's sort of the remnants of the family wage system where the benefits come through the guy and the woman is supported, but without all the – without any of the, uh, of the actual benefits. Um, so, so, yeah, we think that we should – National healthcare is a great example. Everybody should be covered for everything, no matter what. Turns out, we're already paying for it because we pay more than any country. Um, we just need to get the care. And one thing for me is to to take it slightly a, a turn on there, because there are going to be people, of course, who are like, "Well, what about the men's rights?" Well, my in my family, one of my siblings, the man stays at home. He is a house husband, and for many, for many guys, this is you know, atrocious and terrible, but. He loves it. He gets to spend all day with his kid. He loves to bake, and so he does a lot of that. And he's able to, you know, explore and take care of the house and such while, you know, my siblings at work. And it works. And it's one of those where that is a right that you as a man could have. If you and your partner decide, hey, you know what? It doesn't work for me to be at work. You could you, know, you could stay home and be the housekeeper or the house caretaker, and that is okay. <laughs> well, and even for men within the workplace, if your benefits are not dependent on you staying with a particular employer, you have leverage where you didn't. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. It it always makes me because there's so many times you hear about well, what about you know, my rights, and I'm like, well, this does benefit you a whole lot more if you stop and think about it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they might be interested to know that in Sweden it's basically 16 months and each parent can take it and you can split it any way that you want. Um, there is a a use-it-or-lose-it daddy quota to encourage guys to take at least a couple a couple of months off, but um, basically you can, you can split it any way you want. So and that the- gives the family a lot of... Uh, leverage to figure out how they want to arrange their lives. Well, and those are the months where you need it the most, too. Because, I mean, that's when the kid's waking up every, what, three hours, four hours? (laughs) 
You need. I, I don't actually know because I decided not to do that for other reasons. Uh, I decided not to do it either, but I've had two siblings, and then as we were talking before the show, I had, I had a roommate who had a child while we were you know living together and such. So, and then I grew up with childcare. Yeah. <laughs> You just learn, which is also why I learned I didn't want children. <laughs> Fair. Um, so as you've been traveling with the book, Jenny, you have uh, you've been talking to a lot of people about their decisions about having children and not having children. Were there things that came up that were not included in the book? There were a couple. The main the main things that we kept hearing were student debt, um, housing issues, um, and. Uh, that was on top of the healthcare, childcare, paid leave. But also, kind of surprising um, was that that people were saying um, that they just weren't really considering having kids because they were afraid that the world would be wrecked in thirty years from climate change, and why would they want to inflict uh, that on their kids? Um, and then we also heard from African American women. Who are very worried about the healthcare system and discrimination within the healthcare system, leading to um, outrageous rates of maternal mortality and um, and injuries for African American women, um, way out of proportion to um, to what white women are experiencing. So, black women were like, "Why would I put myself in that situation if this this uh, system doesn't care about my health?" Um, so, those were very interesting things to hear. Um, also, people just talk about the number of hours that they're working. Just um, It just makes taking on another project just seem really untenable. Um, so, you know, we're working two or three jobs or we're working one job, but it's got a lot of hours. That kind of thing has been really, really came up a lot. Well, I hate to interrupt because um, especially as a millennial for many of those, <laughs> I can agree. Uh, but we'll return right after the break with Stephanie Zavan and Arthur Jenny Brown. Please stay with us. I'm Hertie Hertz and you're listening to Atheist Talk on KTNF AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. Welcome back to AM 950 KTNF, the progressive voice of Minnesota. You're tuned into Atheist Talk, and I'm your host, Hertzie Hertz, in studio today with Stephanie Zavan and author Jenny Brown of the book Birth Strike. This is our final segment with Stephanie and Jenny. If you're curious about Minnesota Atheists, you can check out the Minnesota Atheist website. We have previous episodes. You can browse articles, book reviews, and peruse the calendar of upcoming events, which includes a reading, was it a reading of the book at bone shaker or is it just a discussion yeah we're gonna do it i'm gonna do a little presentation and then we'll have discussion at bone shaker at six tonight awesome which you can find on the meetup page because i posted it <laughs> um, but we always have tons of activities going around and you can check it out if you enjoy the show and all that Minnesota Atheist has to offer, consider becoming a member of Minnesota Atheist while you're on the website. Membership has some great perks. Check out the hows and the whys. And now back to our conversation with Stephanie and Jenny. So Jenny, we've talked, you've mentioned consciousness raising a couple of times, and that's one of those things that I think um, people who haven't done it have a lot of misconceptions about because people have tried to create misconceptions about, ooh, consciousness raising. What is the process actually? So consciousness raising, we use this a lot in our group, which has a, a roots in the 60s women's liberation movement. And basically, you go around the room and answer a question. 
um, from your own experience. And then at the end, you try to draw conclusions about what's happening in our lives um, based on the testimony that came out. Um, so one of the questions that we've been asking is, um, you know, what made you decide to have kids or not have kids? And has your has your thinking changed on this? Um, and so from that, we have been getting a lot of testimony about the difficulty of having kids when you have them, the difficulty of contemplating having kids when you um, are, are trying to plan it out. Um, but basically, what consciousness raising allows you to do is compare your experience with other women and see that things that you thought were your own struggle or your own fault or you've done something wrong, everybody has those same problems and is juggling those same issues. So clearly, it's not just a personal thing where you zigged where you should have zagged or took on too much debt or whatever it is. Everybody is struggling with that stuff. So there must be um, a systemic uh, cause for all of this. And what we think the systemic cause is, is that um, the policy in the United States is to get a maximum of women's unpaid labor with a minimum of expense for corporations and, and employers. Um, and that's really what has been uh, going on when we talk about all of these struggles we're having around childcare and paid leave and, and really the struggle to have kids. So, um, so it's, very, uh, it's very enlightening when you compare your experiences with other people and see that it's not just you. And also it, it gets rid of the self-blame or like the mommy wars where everybody's blaming each other. Um, sometimes we blame ourselves and that makes us depressed eventually. Um, but if we see that this is a system that requires our unpaid labor to function and that when we have kids, we are making an enormous contribution to um, the, the ongoing existence of our society, it's not like it was a personal choice that you, um, that you made. It's actually a contribution that um, because it benefits the whole society, the whole society, including the rich and employers, should be paying in. So – this is not the first country, the U.S., who has tried to use reproductive coercion um, to to create basically a bigger workforce. Um, although it may be somewhat unique in that this has largely been done by supporting evangelical um, evangelical groups and organizations, um, but plenty of other. Countries have tried this and and largely failed, um, and and then resorted to actually providing at least some kind of financial incentives. What have women done in those countries that has been successful? Yeah, well, um, a great example is Poland, where um, after communism was overthrown, they made abortion illegal. The birth rate has not gone up at all. It's gone down because people are just finding other ways to get abortions. Um, pretty much every country has has used reproductive coercion. I mean, one of my ex glowing examples in the book is France, where you get two years paid leave. They have great child care. The national health care system is excellent. Um, you have shorter work weeks. But, I mean... France in 1900 was forcing women to have kids. I mean, they were doing everything to suppress birth control and abortion. Um, so they tried that strategy. And then finally, after trying every strategy in the book, um, by the 70s, feminists managed to win abortion 
included in their national health care system, which they already had, um, they decided, oh, well, gosh, maybe what we need to do is if, if women are actually going to have control of their reproduction, we need to um, give them some incentives to, to have kids make it easier. And so that's what they have done over the past few years. And their birth rate has actually gone up as a result. It's, it's around replacement now. So, um, so they're actually able to do that. And the, and the main things are big investments in childcare, um, uh, an excellent healthcare system. Um, so you, it takes the worry out of, of being pregnant, of having the baby, of if your kid gets sick, all of that. Um, and, then, uh, and then excellent paid leave policies um, and again, shorter work hours, um, partly because you can take lots of sick leave, you, can, you get giant amounts of vacation, um, you know, eight weeks is not unusual in, in uh, Europe to get vacation, so that just makes, makes having kids much easier and much more fun, right? Um, so I would say that every country has gone through this phase. I think we're still in that phase of trying to do reproductive coercion and not give women their rights to control their bodies. Um, and that's where we stand right now. Do you think that if the coercion actually goes through and it actually that eventually it will turn around and that kind of stuff will ha happen? Or do you think it's going to kind of go more admittedly Handmaid's Tale style where forced, basically it's going to, I mean, I already consider the, the not the pro-life I consider that really just forced birth movement or do you think the the forced birth movement is just gonna run rampant kind of handmaid's tale style well there is this uh, sort of really sad case in Texas in an area of Texas where a bunch of uh, birth control clinics were shut down after Texas got rid of um, funding for them and the birth rate in that area actually went up. So it is true, but I think that um, across the country, uh, women and anybody who can get pregnant, everybody is um, uh, not willing to buckle under. So people are going to use um, the methods that they've always used going underground. Um, now we have a much better uh, uh, medical solution than coat hangers. We have abortion pills, which are much, much safer. Um, and, uh, you know, people order them on the gray market on the Internet. Um, you can get them in other countries. Uh, one of the pills in the combination is available uh, over the counter in Mexico. So I think people are going to do all the things that they need to do to control their reproduction. That's just the history of it. All but, right. Yeah. Thank you, Jenny. Yep. We're definitely going to continue this conversation because I have questions. <laughs> um, but thank you for tuning in to Atheist Talk. We'd love to have you join us again next Sunday, which should be another exciting episode. Have a wonderful weekend, everybody, and stay cool, though it's actually pretty decent right now. Should be only 80s this week. Only. Only. Hey, better than 90s. Yeah. Have a wonderful weekend, everyone. Bye.